Hey, Counterpunchers, quick note about this week's show. There were some background audio issues in the beginning of the conversation. It lasts about 12 minutes. We were able to straighten that out, and the rest of it is smooth sailing. The audio is fairly good. So please do enjoy this week's episode, my conversation with Sumaita Paul about Kashmir and a whole lot more. Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back to the show. First-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Lots of very important information to cover today. Hopefully uh, some enlightening information. Hopefully it's information that you haven't found anywhere else, and that's the kind of analysis, the kind of perspective that we like to bring at Counterpunch. Uh, if you value that, please do become a subscriber to the print magazine. It's a great way to keep Counterpunch going, to keep us uh, printing on paper, to keep this thing called print media working in this modern world. Uh, you can also just make a donation through PayPal if you want to support Counterpunch. You can do it by phone. However you'd like to do that, it's greatly appreciated. So let me turn to my guest uh, today. I I'm, I'm really excited to speak with her because she's going to provide us some analysis on what's going on in Kashmir and in India more broadly as these very uh, turbulent times unfold. Sumeda Paul is with us today. Uh, Sumeda is a journalist in New Delhi. She is... Well, I think she is one of the one of the voices that we really do need to hear from today. So I'm happy to have her on the show. She works with the alternative media organization NewsClick. She covers politics, protests, and the environment, as well as other issues for the NewsClick organization. You can follow her on Facebook or on Instagram. Sumeda Paul, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you so much, Eric. I am extremely uh, glad to have this conversation. And I feel really uh, fortunate to have you on board. So let's jump right into it. Um, The situation in Kashmir, it's not unknown. Uh, You are getting some coverage in the New York Times and in mainstream publications in the West. But it really does remain shrouded in mystery uh, in in a lot of ways. And I want to kind of unpack exactly what's going on there. But before we get into that, let's assume that we have people listening who know absolutely nothing about Kashmir. What is this place? What is the history that has brought us to this point today? 
Okay, so just quickly for your listeners, uh, a very brief summary of what's going on, where this place is. So Kashmir is um, a state in the northern parts of India. It is a landlocked sort of territory between India and Pakistan, with China also on the other side. And during the partition of India in 1947, we had a very bloody, uh, traumatic uh, partition between the two countries of India and Pakistan. And amongst many other princely states which were governed by kings and rulers, Kashmir was one of the states. Talking a little bit about the demography of Kashmir, it has uh, three very important components. There is Jammu and Kashmir, and there is also uh, the region of Ladakh. And all three are very different in terms of uh, their cultural and linguistic and historic values. And all three of them um, together have formed uh, this this state, which um, is something which is shrouded in a lot of controversy ever since the partition has happened. And India and Pakistan, of course, have fought many wars uh, over the territories, taking claim to the territory. And that is primarily because um, during the time of the partition, while the other states uh, ceded to India and they became a part of the Indian Union, um, Kashmir was one territory which was being ruled by a Dogra king who happened to be a Hindu king. And uh, Kashmir is a territory which has a majority of Muslim population. If we were to go by the census data, there are over um, over 70% of the population, at least in the Kashmir part, is a Muslim-dominated uh, majority. While in Jammu, there are about 30% of the population happens to be uh, a Hindu um, uh, dominated territory. While on Ladakh, we have a fair share of Sikhs and Buddhists. So it is it is a very diverse uh, territory culturally. And also in terms of resources, uh, it is a very contested territory with India and Pakistan both wanting to state that um, uh, Kashmir belongs to them. And uh, there, there is also a territory called as Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, which remains a no-man's land. And uh, that is a territory which is, has again witnessed a lot of turmoil. And Kashmir has seen waves of insurgency and militancy. And there is a very uh, strong anti-India, anti-Pakistan sentiment as well, which exists on the ground. So it has multiple layers of um, stakeholders and multiple layers of um, interests that are involved, which makes this um, a very difficult terrain uh, to navigate. Now, quickly jumping over to what has really happened. Um, ever since India partitioned, uh, we, we partitioned the both, both the countries, in 1947, Kashmir uh, essentially signed an instrument of accession to say that they will accede to India. It was a very symbolic move. And it was built on a lot of trust with uh, the Kashmiri people. And they were promised that they will their identities will be uh, protected and respected, their cultural values will be protected and if they accede to India. And a promise was made through this instrument of accession. And logistically speaking, or in terms of its legality, the state was given something which has been known as Article 370, which is uh, the buzzword currently when we look at the debate with Kashmir. So Article 370 is a special act of the parliament which guaranteed special powers to the state of Jammu and Kashmir. And it also had a special article called 35A. It essentially meant that India and Pakistan, uh, that India uh, will 
not intervene in the governance of the state. The state will have its own constituent assembly. The state was to have its own prime minister. It was to have its own uh, flag. And it was supposed to have its own constitution as well. Over the years, Article 370 has been diluted on multiple occasions. Uh, however, the move of the Indian government on the 5th of August was a final nail in the coffin. And Article 370 has not just been about uh, administrative, uh, uh, has not been in place primarily for administrative purposes. It had a lot of symbolic value for the people of the valley and for the region because they felt that uh, their identities were somehow associated with the special status that uh, the, their state enjoyed. And another very crucial factor being that this article essentially guaranteed people of Kashmir that no other person from uh, outside the territory of the state could come in and settle there so as to protect their cultural identity, their natural resources and their sovereignty. And uh, no person could settle there. So these are very, very uh, important powers that the state enjoyed. And currently, India has sort of unilaterally breached uh, this agreement that it had made to Kashmir. And the, as a consequence of this, now what has happened is that uh, there is a distinct whiff of colonialism that currently exists. Um, now we have finally, in India, people feel that they have finally claimed this territory that was not really theirs and they can buy land and settle in their new domain and there are new territories that are now open for business. So that's essentially what's happened. The act has also stripped uh, the state of its special status, which includes the right to have their own constitution and their own flag. It strips the state of statehood and it partitions it into two union territories, which essentially means that there are more reduced powers that uh, the state will enjoy. And the locally legislative, um, in, uh, so it can be administered from New Delhi, which is where the central government of India operates. So they will have more powers um, over the governance in the state. And uh, speaking of Ladakh, again, it will be administrated directly from New Delhi and it will not have a legislative assembly. So these are very, very grave um, consequences for the state. Absolutely. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a radical departure from the status quo of the last 70 years. And I guess the question to ask would be, why now? What what yeah. has changed uh, now that um, obviously there is the question of Modi and the politics of the far right and that, that we can speak to. But I just wanted yeah. to get a sense of what's really driving this from your perspective. Is it purely a Hindu nationalist push? Is there something else that's motivating this? How do we read the situation? Yeah, um, a very strong reason, of course, is the Hindu nationalist uh, push, the BJP government. Government, which is which is now in power for over five years did come to power on a massive polarization plank the revocation of article 370 was one of uh, the prime things on their uh, agenda and uh, narendra modi who is now our prime minister has been campaigning for this revocation for uh, the past several decades so ever since he joined the rss which is a, which is a far right hindu supremacist organization he has been at the forefront of advocating 
to remove Article 370 and to assimilate is what he calls Kashmir into the rest of the country. And this move was particularly packaged as something which was to give, uh, uh, you know, which was to provide development to the state. Essentially, the government projected that uh, this article was the sole barrier to the growth and to the development of the state and to the economic prosperity of Kashmir. But of course, there is contradictory data to to say so. So of course, there is a very strong Hindu pitch. But there is also what is interesting to note here is that the demographics of the state are to alter completely. Now, um, since um, Article 370 is removed, many settlers can now from mainland India go and settle into Kashmir and change the majority Muslim-dominated nature of the state. And it is also important to remember that in 1947, there was also a very strong debate about a plebiscite um, that was promised to the people of Kashmir. And it was not done primarily because it was assumed that the majority Muslim population would like to move to Pakistan instead of choosing to be with India. So now that the demographic which has existed for over 70 years is also likely to change. But having said that, it is important to remember that the right-wing forces here are also very strongly being backed by corporates. So there is a very strong corporate interest. Kashmir happens to be one of the most uh, most nat- most uh, uh, natural resource-rich state. It happens to be the state where there is a lot of unexplored territory, a lot of un- unexplored resources um, uh, that are there in the state. And Article 370 was preventing all this while all these big corporate giants to go into the state. And it is very interesting to note that Mukesh Ambani, who happens to be one of the richest men in the world, and he runs the Reliance Empire, has recently gone on to state that they are going to be launching new schemes for the state of Kashmir. And the incentive of buying land is being packaged as uh, a very capitalistic endeavor to sort of tap to those um, unexplored natural resources of the state. So there is a very strong corporate backing which is combined with a very dangerous mix of supremacist Hindutva ideology. So there are, there are these very two, two very strong factors at play. And uh, it's important for your audiences to also remember that in India, like many other countries in the world, including the US, the corporate lobby is has very has played a very crucial role in the election of the Narendra Modi government to power. And uh, here we are witnessing that uh, there are multiple leeways that are being given to corporates in terms of investment, in terms of resources, in terms of environmental clearances so in in a way this sort of extends the same project to uh, enable corporates to take over natural resources and indigenous territory Uh, now this corporate project has sort of extended now to the state of Kashmir um, packaged as something uh, which is to develop the state and which is to improve its economic uh, value so it's a very uh, dangerous combination that we're witnessing here and um, yeah, so it, 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 the way in which that this has been done is also very, very problematic. And the question of why now, it is also important to remember that we have just, Narendra Modi has just um, come into his second term. It has not been, it has barely been a few months since he's come to power. And this was the first ever parliament session that was conducted um, after his re-election. And which makes it extremely crucial in terms of the the suppression of 
um opposition voices are we have we currently have a very weak opposition in terms of the main party which is the indian national congress it is currently witnessing a crisis and so in its very first uh, parliament session after the election what they have done is that they have passed a series of bills there are over 32 bills that were passed in this session of parliament which is uh ex- which is very ex- historic for the indian parliament to function this has not happened in over 15 years so in over three parliamentary terms this is the first time that a record number of bills have been passed and these bills have been passed without any debate and they have been passed with a lot of uh, lack of respect for a democratic procedure and that has happened because the bjp has come back with a thumping majority and these bills are extremely dangerous bills so art- the revocation of article 370 is just one of these bills but there are other bills such as the right to right to information where people could question the government which is now being substantially altered so people can't question the government there are other bills such as the uapa bill which declares individuals as terrorists so there are multiple other bills which have been passed and it looks like it is a part of a bigger project so this this comes as a um, a crucial link to that big project where they're trying to alter our democratic processes where they there is a clear attempt being made to undermine perhaps the constitution and the jammu and kashmir reorganization act which uh, essentially has revoked article 370 was also a part of this particular parliamentary session and it has come with a string of such bills which are currently you know threatening our democratic institutions yeah That's very interesting. Thank you for that analysis. And uh, I know you're in a busy newsroom, so we're going to hopefully uh, work on reducing some of that background noise. But um, uh, moving moving back into some of these issues that you bring up, Sumit, I, I just want to ask, uh, before we get back into Kashmir and what's happening on the ground there, um, what strength does Modi have to do this because for a lot of us around the world uh who were watching Modi's first term it was met with uh you know an economic scheme related to the currency yeah. that was roundly seen as a disaster uh a lot of the policies that he had originally run on that were either discredited or otherwise mm-hmm. sort of backed away from um so what gives him the political strength to be able to do something as radical as this Yeah just to break that down for you so the first term that he contested the election like you rightly mentioned was on the agenda of development but as we've been seeing on the ground under the garb of development narendra modi and his team and the massive campaign that they led the bjp currently has over 1 million members so in the last 5 years they've been essentially able to create a narrative about hindutva and about hindu pride about stating that it is time for the hindu population to finally consolidate what is rightfully theirs and to realize the dreams of creating a hindu rashtra which is to exactly say that india wants to be an a hindu only nation state so this agenda was pushed through multiple uh, through multiple ways we saw very very um, drastic very blatant electoral campaign being run in the name of um, god ram and there was an electoral promise that the bjp has made uh, to create a ram temple in the disputed territory of ayodhya over the last 5 years we've been witnessing a lot of 
vigilantism, a lot of mob lynchings and a lot of subversion of the rights of major minority communities and the Dalits, which happen to be lower castes in India. So there is a, there is a very um, strategic polarization pitch that the BJP and Narendra Modi in their first term were very successfully able to disseminate to even the ground, uh, to, the, to the grassroots. And it is important to remember that there was a lot of money uh, that was coming in, that was poured into the campaign of the BJP. The BJP was the largest advertiser in India. It was advertising more than Facebook and Netflix combined. So there is the strength of a very multi-layered um, media campaign that they ran and which brought them back with a thumping majority, of course. And at the same time, there was a lot of political vacuum in the country that exists because we do not have a strong opposition. And um, that is primarily because of the crisis in the Congress party. Currently, uh, over the last few weeks, there were debates about who is going to now become the president of the Congress party. And the Congress party, to project itself as a viable opposition, failed this time because they did not have an appeal. They probably also lacked an agenda. And they were not able to rightly encapsulate the sentiment on the ground, which the BJP very successfully did. And uh, it did so by flaring communal tensions, by flaring uh, a polarization pitch, and which, which resonated with everyday Indians, and uh, especially the Hindus, of course. So in a way, the the um, re-election of BJP was seen as a way to consolidate second-born Hindus, which were, uh, which are essentially the Brahmins or the Baniyas, who are actually uh, they run very higher up in the social hierarchy in the country in terms of their social position and also in terms of their economic resources. So the BJP has then, you know, shifted its base. And they have expanded currently uh, to to um, to many parts uh, of the country. And it is very important to remember that while speaking of the opposition, India has multiple states and it has state governments that function in those states. In the last five years, the BJP, headed by Narendra Modi, and political the political strategizing that happens happens with the now Home Minister Amit Shah. So they have managed to subvert the democratically elected state governments. And this has happened through um, out of parliamentary procedures. There are state governments which are weakened because of defection of MLAs, of um, uh, political rivalry. And we've been witnessing that there are multiple state governments which have also fallen. So there is no substantial opposition uh, to the BJP and uh, Narendra Modi and his use of the Hindutva pride, of the Hindu pride, and this imagery that this man has been able to create uh, is something which has uh, really taken over uh, the imagination of the common Indian. And that is something which is, I think, common in terms of how far right leaders like to project themselves in terms of populist schemes, in terms of um, extreme agendas. That is something that we've seen with Trump calling for um, a ban on the Muslims or building the wall in Mexico. So these are some of the things uh, I think that run um, commonly through all these far right leaders, be it La Pen, be it Trump. And, and uh, so there is clearly the rise of the far right um, globally and in, in many parts of Europe. And of course, this has also um, um, is something that is being replicated probably in Asia and Narendra Modi sort of 
personifies um, the kind of layers that go into a very strong far-right campaign. Indeed, and there's a lot more to say to that. And um, when we come back, when we come back from the break, I want to focus on Kashmir, what's going on there, what we know is going on on the ground, and uh, some other issues around that. But the final question, I just want to quickly ask you before we do go to break. Uh, uh, speaking of Trump, since you mentioned Trump, one of the things that we've we've realized in the U.S., or at least I've certainly realized uh, over the last three years, is just how complex intra-ruling class conflicts can be, that Trump was the candidate not uh, against the ruling class, but of one segment of the ruling class that really (laughs) broke from what we had always understood to be a kind of neoliberal consensus to that point. So my question to you is, uh, the ruling class, big capital in India, is it united behind Modi? Is it one sector of the ruling class that's really driving him while another sector is pushing the opposition? How do we read the role of capital? in India's politics right now? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting point that you mentioned. So Narendra Modi, uh, strikingly uh, dissimilar to uh, Trump, he came to power on the promise of projecting uh, himself as an ordinary man, as somebody who sells tea, as somebody who um, is is somebody who is has come out of growing up on a railway station platform and uh, things like that. So th- it, it is interesting to note how over the years uh, him and his government have been able to then consolidate the respect and also the trust of the capitalist class. So currently, like you uh, asked me if the capitalist class was behind this government, um, in his term as chief minister of the state of Gujarat as well, he uh, did dole out a lot of benefits to corporate giants like the Ambani's and Adani's. So he has sort of taken forth this uh, corporate project even now as he has become the prime minister. So there is a lot of capital which um, has backed uh, his re-election. There is a lot of capitalist interest of the ruling class which has backed the kind of campaign that the BJP could afford to pull off. It was the most expensive uh, election that India has ever witnessed with unprecedented amounts of money being spent on electoral campaigns and new technologies being used. So there is, and all of that was made possible for the BJP and for Narendra Modi by the ruling classes. And uh, that was primarily because of uh, deep-seated corporate interests. And over the last five years, the, the BJP government has adopted one of the worst environmental policies that we have seen. So, and that is all to favor giant uh, corporate firms and to give them uh, lands at uh, throwaway prices or to cut down the money that they were spending on electricity and water. The BJP has also, uh, like Bolsonaro, in um, uh, Bolsonaro is pushing for. They have also uh, attacked uh, the indigenous populations only so that there could be corporate interests that could be favored over the interests of the indigenous people. So there is a very strong corporate project uh, that is backing the BJP and the ruling class or a major section of the ruling class with the most amount of money is um, backing Narendra Modi. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Okay, let's jump to a break. Um, on the other side of the break, I want to return to Kashmir, get an update on what's going on on the ground, what we know, what we don't know, yeah. and uh, where we might be going from there. Stick with us. We will be right back.
and we're back. I'm chatting with Sumeda Paul. Uh, again, I, I recommend you follow her work. It's really top-notch. Follow her on Facebook and on Instagram. Um, I want to come back to the issue of Kashmir. We talked a little okay. bit before the break about capital and the ruling class and Modi and some of the broader political issues, but what do yeah. we know What do we know that's going on on the ground right now? I mean, talk to me about the disappearances, the military occupation, yeah. the curfew. Uh, we, we hear some details trickling out in the international press, but I'm wondering what you hear about on the ground in India, what's being discussed? Yeah, so this is the 21st day today where the state has been under a complete information lockdown. There are about 7 million people in the state who are currently um, without any forms of communication. They have no means to reach out to each other. Um, And just to put things in perspective for the audience, Kashmir happens to be one of the most militarized zones in the world. But what we know today in terms of the presence of the troops and the militarization that is happening, there is there are 10 uh, 10 security personnel for every one person in the state. So that does put things into perspective in terms of just how heavily uh, militarized the zone is and just the kind of patrolling and surveillance that the people are living under. There were uh, the, the Indian government has been constantly trying to project that there is normalcy which has restored in the state. There are uh, information there are information that we are getting from the ground that the the government is asking school buses to uh, ply through the streets so that they can click pictures and so that they can be sharing it with the audiences and in the global media to say that uh, normalcy has returned to the state. However, we know that this is far from the truth because there is a medical crisis also which is unfolding in the state right now. Um, there are people who are uh, dying because there are, there are lacks, there is no um, facilities of medicines. There are people who are having to fly out of the state to be able to buy medicines for their parents. And uh, there, there, there are uh, food shortages which are being reported. And uh, apart from that, there is some gruesome forms of violence which is being witnessed in the state. Currently, there are multiple patients. Uh, there are uh, We don't have numbers on just the kind of tear gas and uh, pellet injuries um, that are being reported uh, in the state currently. And there are contradictory media accounts. So just to put things in perspective, also the Indian government um, recently rege- questioned the BJP, uh, the BBC group over the co- their coverage of what is happening in uh, the state. And uh, uh, later, the Indian government uh, agreed to the kind of reports that were coming out from the international media outlets. And currently, um, the most... Uh, Uh, valuable information that we're getting comes from uh, outlets like the New York Times or the uh, the BBC or uh, The Guardian. Uh, But Indian journalists um, have not been able to access multiple parts of uh, the state. There is still a very limited information flow um, that is happening primarily because of the lockdown. Those who are are being able to access the state um, are sort of having a unilateral flow of information because there is no information on these people um, uh, coming back. So, and and uh, from what we know uh, currently in terms of numbers, again, there are uh, a lot of detentions that are taking place. Uh, according to one of the reports, there are over 2,000 people who have been uh, detained uh, currently. And they're being detained primarily on the suspicion of creating uh, conflict 
in in the in the state and uh, this comes in in the backdrop of a lot of political leaders also being arrested and put under house arrest um separatist leaders also being uh, taken to different territories only so that they do not create um problems for the indian state to carry out this this massive exercise so um in terms of information flow of course we have limited information but currently now since it's the 21st date there are still uh, reports which are surfacing of smaller protests in multiple areas speaking of just how bad uh, the situation is recently about 2 weeks ago the state and for muslims in india they had one of their biggest festivals which was uh, the festival of eid and um, in new delhi there were so many students who had parents back home and they had not been able to speak to their parents for over 4 to 5 days they did not know if their parents are alive they did not know if their parents have managed to eat uh, food they did not know if they had enough supplies and essential commodities so the situation is such where there is massive alienation and there is lack of communication and um, at the same time there is an attempt by the government to project uh, normalcy and to force in a way normalcy onto the people of kashmir and uh, it has happened in a way where they had not even consented to this decision that was taken for them and a lot of the friends and uh, reporters that have spoken to on the ground are saying that now they are not ready to accept this normalcy that is being forced onto them and uh, just to just something to point out here is that this comes in the backdrop of the last year 2018 becoming the bloodiest year in a decade for the state of jammu and kashmir there were about there were deaths which were reported of about 250 militants of over 200 civilians and also security personnel so this move of the abrogation of article 370 comes in a very uh, it comes in a background a backdrop of enormous conflict and a lot of anger and a lot of resentment on the ground uh, so clearly the situation as we know of now uh, there are massive human rights violations which are being reported there is a fact finding team which had recently visited the valley and uh they traveled across um uh, the state of kashmir it was led by um members of the left parties and of uh it had members from the all india democratic women's association it had members from some of the civil society groups and once they reached uh, the state they could not uh, they they could only travel on foot so they managed to cover some of the areas over a stretch of 5 days and they traveled to different interior parts of uh, the state to reach out to people however they could not get anybody to speak on camera primarily because they were extremely scared and uncertain of what's going to happen uh, but they did report that there are uh, children who are being picked up from their homes there are women who are being molested and abused by security personnel and there are shortages of supplies and there is a brutal crackdown which is uh, being unleashed on the people of uh, the state by the indian government and all of this is happening while the world does not know the extent of these um, human rights abuses and the extent of the crackdown uh, that the indian state is unleashing so it will become clearer only as perhaps more time passes and more of us are able to access the state and to, um, if we are able to successfully um, extract some of the information out of the state which currently is 
very very difficult with uh, the crackdown one of the interesting things about the situation is that it's so it seems so out of sight out of mind because Kashmir yeah. is so geographically separate from the from from the rest of India it's it's somewhat okay. remote uh, geographically can you talk a little bit about uh, how most people in India don't necessarily feel connected to Kashmir and perhaps the geographical separation and emotional separation has some yeah. uh, role in the ability to compartmentalize what's happening there Absolutely. So like you rightly pointed out, there is a very uh, clear alienation in the minds of the Indians, especially the ones from um, the northern parts of the country or the southern parts of the country to be uh, able to connect with the cultural values or with the linguistic values of the people of the state. However, at the same time, the state has always been used um, as a rhetoric to state uh, a very masculine, hyper-nationalist project that this is our state, that this is our territory. So there is that narrative which was always present at the back of uh, the minds of uh, common Indians. So when the, uh, when the Article 370 was actually revoked in the minds of common Indians, it looked like a triumphant move over a territory which was theirs, but they could not take claim to it and is now finally theirs. So there is this false sense of integration that was created um, to to, um, ensure that this uh, project was rightfully achieved. And uh, this false sense of an imagined community was created in the minds of um, young Indians and in the minds of ordinary people that this is our territory and we must stake claim to it, even if we do not emotionally connect to it, even if we've never visited the place and even if we've never interacted with the people of the state, this is something that is ours. So it is um, it is this narrative that sort of drove many Indians to celebrate this as a triumphant move. And there was a lot of rhetoric and jingoism also um, that was a part of um, the narrative here. So a lot of, and it it also happens to be an extremely uh, toxic uh, and a sexist rhetoric that was created. A lot of members of uh, the parliament and legislative assemblies of the BJP, uh, they uh, stated that now finally Indians can marry Kashmiri women um, because that was one of um, uh, the things in article 370 that if a Kashmiri woman were to marry people outside the state, she might as well Um, lose the property rights in the state. However, that was later overturned. But uh, just to give the listeners a sense of this toxic rhetoric that was being created uh, to, you know, stake control and to um, colonize and to um, claim territory. So this was done in the name of Kashmiri women. There were a lot of people talking about buying land and uh, finally settling in there. So this this sort of an approach was fueled into people to sort of seek acceptance of this decision, which is why we don't see so much resistance, uh, perhaps from the common people on the ground, as much as there is from the more progressive sections in the society, which realize that this is um, this narrative is being created only to um, create this false illusion of triumph and acceptance. 
That actually leads me exactly to my next question that I wanted to ask you about the role of the left in India in all of yeah. this, because uh, unlike in the United States, there does seem to be a, a coherent, organized and militant left in India. We've seen general strikes uh, in the not too distant yeah. past. Uh, we've seen millions turn out into the streets under carrying red banners and under the, yeah. uh, you know, under the auspices of communism, etc. So I, I, I'd like to just ask you, where is the left? on Kashmir now is there organizing going on solidarity work is it more complicated than that is it divided how how is the left responding to the situation yeah so um, the decision to remove uh, article 370 was taken on the 5th of August the very same day we did see a united uh, left delegation taking to the streets in New Delhi and it was raining and there was a massive delegation which took to the streets to um, come out of the parliament these were elected members and party workers who had come out to say that this is not acceptable that this is an extremely fascist move a move which undermines the constitution a move which undermines the right of um, expression and dissent of uh, the people of the state because this was done in a unilateral way without any consultations with the stakeholders on the ground. So the left has remained uh, extremely united and organized over the issue. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, that this is the 21st day of the lockdown. So in the past 20, 20 days, we've been seeing delegations, protests and demonstrations which are taking place across the country under the banner of the United Left, which includes the Communist Party of India, Marxist, and the Communist Party of India and the Communist Party of India, Marxist liberation. So, and and uh, alongside this, there are a lot of civil society groups, women's organizations, students' organizations um, who have taken to the streets uh, consistently every week to be able to um, constantly reiterate that this is not acceptable uh, to um, this section uh, to to us, and we will continue to fight for this until this is being taken legally as well. So there is a petition currently in India Supreme Court, which is challenging the way in which um, this decision was taken. And uh, so there are multiple follow-ups on that. And of course, the left is um, currently sort of spearheading the struggle and uh, mass organizations and mass mobilizations across the country. And it is particularly strong in New Delhi because it happens to be the center of uh, political activity. And uh, um, I happened to be one. Of, I happened to be at one of these protests uh, that were organized, and it was joined by workers. It was joined by students, and uh, these are being constantly organized to not just send a message to the government that this is not accepted uh, acceptable politically, but to also give a very strong message of uh, solidarity to the people of the state that uh, although they are in a lockdown, there are people who are uh, in the mainland who are um, fighting to ensure that this does not continue to ensure that the lockdown is uh, uh, eased and it, uh, it stopped. And in the last one week as well, we saw a united left uh, delegation which had protested and organized a public meeting in New Delhi um, again to um, send out this message. So there are consistent efforts being made uh, by the left parties um, as far as this is concerned. And uh, I think this is likely to gain more and more momentum with more people joining in and support pouring in as um, the movement is spreading to the other parts of the country as well. 
my other question um, has to do with Pakistan because, of course, uh, yeah. nothing nothing in regard to Kashmir can be understood without the broader international dynamic here. So, uh, how has Pakistan responded to all of this? Uh, obviously, Kashmir has been a flashpoint between India and Pakistan from you know from time immemorial, literally mm-hmm. since the founding of the country. So, yeah. uh, the question the question really is, uh, well, a how has Pakistan responded, and then perhaps even more importantly. Uh, what potential is there for an escalation over Kashmir that could spill over into potential nuclear conflict? Uh, absolutely. So uh, it's important to remember that um, just a couple of weeks before uh, the Indian election took place, there was serious escalation of tension between uh, India and Pakistan, and uh, which and that for that came in the backdrop of security, over 40 security personnel uh, being killed in an attack which the Indian government claimed was organized by Pakistan. So um, currently as well, Imran Khan has said that the world is ignoring the suppression of the Kashmiris and they do have very strong interests in in terms of uh, the in terms of valley and in terms of their resources and uh, they are also going to i think it 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 happens today where the pakistani prime minister is going to address his country on the issue of kashmir and his uh, address comes at a time where they've been making a lot of noise over uh, the narendra modi government's uh, move to revoke the special status and Pakistan has come out in a very strong protest over recent developments which are surrounding uh, the state. And uh, however, Pakistan has not received so much support uh, on the global level uh, with that being concerned apart from China. So the regional dynamic uh, remains to be extremely critical at this point. Uh, there might be um, an ex- escalation of uh, tensions as uh, is being projected. Um, and uh, so it remains extremely dense. They've been protesting how India has um, not taken into consideration uh, the interests of the Kashmiris to um, uh, to, to uh, revoke Article 370. In fact, um, uh, Pakistan President also Arif Alvi recently said that India is playing with fire by revoking uh, the special status. And they said that the dispute uh, cannot be resolved bilaterally, and he has also urged the international community to intervene. So they're using this as an opportunity to talk about uh, the special status of the state. And they're also constantly uh, reigniting um, uh, the discussion over the Muslim majority of uh, the state and how the Muslims are being uh, treated in uh, the region. So over the weeks that this move has uh, come into place, they're trying to internationalize the dispute. And uh, they have also gone on to state that Kashmir uh, will make clear uh, their intention once the security lockdown ends. And there is a possibility of India conducting a false flag operation like uh, Pakistan, like Pulwama before attacking Pakistan. So um, they have they've been constantly requesting the international community to pressure India to go back to its moves on Kashmir. And uh, they have called this a hegemonistic uh, attempt uh, by the Indian government. So there are imminent concerns as far as the military escalation is, uh, is there because these happen to be two nuclear powers. We've already witnessed a showdown. So the situation remains extremely tensed. And um, India has also um, expressed its concerns about the safety of nuclear weapons. 
and uh, pakistan has now very openly gone on to state that um, our our country is being run under the control of a fascist uh, hindu supremacist and uh, therefore not taking into concern the interests of the muslims in uh, kashmir and they have hit out at uh, the administration of the bjp for its uh, decision and they are also stating that this could lead to the genocide of uh, the kashmiris and um, they have on i think recently in on august uh, 16 they had also um, flagged the issue with the security council in a closed door meeting to discuss the situation in the state um and several countries including china the us and france have urged uh, these countries uh, like india and pakistan to resolve the matter um uh, on their own and speaking of china um um india has very strongly reacted to the chinese statement on uh, kashmir this came in the backdrop of china expressing concerns over the current situation in kashmir and also opposing the move to make ladakh a separate union territory um so uh, so they very sharply critiqued this and um, they said that this is an internal matter so we do see a lot of um, escalation in terms of uh, diplomatic tensions between all three countries the us of course has um trump had repeatedly offered uh, the narendra modi government to let him mediate in the manner in in the matter between um uh, the countries and to talk about article 370 as well so there is a clear internationalization of the issue and uh, as far as diplomatic tensions are concerned so china has also issued close to about two to three statements on kashmir in the last uh, couple of weeks in july as well china had asked india and pakistan to exercise restraint and it said that they should peacefully uh, settle the issue however uh, this did not go to uh, well with india and uh, so now the us is also attempting to play a very constructive uh, sort of a role is what at least trump is claiming it to be to sort of uh, intervene in the issue so it's it's a it's a very um, interesting time also to observe the diplomatic relations and how uh, this is structurally changing in uh, the region and uh, a lot of it is a cause of concern as well uh, in terms of the escalation of tensions which as as of now um are not posing such a grave threat but i think in the in the next couple of weeks to to come where um the where the issue is uh, where the lockdown is likely to ease out so the dynamics are also to change with more and more people coming out of kashmir and talking about um the real situation on the ground so these dynamics are to witness a lot of swift uh changes i believe yeah that's that's really my final question is where do we go from here what do you see as the next steps both in terms of for the people of kashmir and for those uh elsewhere in india who are standing in solidarity with them i mean are we are we going to see more protests are we seeing any organized opposition within the legislative system uh organized in, in within the halls of power outside <laughs> the halls of power uh yeah. what do you read as the short term and say medium term next steps so i think currently the state is still grappling with this transformation that has happened it is sort of been um, unprecedented and they are still grappling with what this really means to the people for uh, people in kashmir on the ground so that is something that is still being processed and i feel that in the next couple of weeks to come until at least the lockdown is eased that this is going to be a very very difficult uh, transition 
and with the attempts being made to project normalcy in the state there is clearly uh, more anger there is a lot of resentment towards the indian state there is a complete lack of trust uh, towards the indian state now because this one um, way in which kashmiris were trusting the indian government has been completely taken away so there is that very strong uh, emotional sentiment which uh, is going to be taking its own course for uh, the population of the state to process speaking in logistically in terms of where things can be headed currently uh, that there is a very strong united opposition that is building up on the ground which is being headed by the left parties and also at the same time independent students and young activists who are now coming uh, to the fore there are young uh, students who happen to live in mainland india from the street as from uh, the state who are organizing themselves on the streets so i think in the next few weeks we're going to see a heightened momentum in terms of opposition against uh, this move of the government we are definitely going to see uh, consistent protests uh, that are taking place currently and uh, it is it is unlikely that um, the government is going to uh, change its stance on what it had already done and it is it is being projected as a triumph with the mainstream media outlets sort of reporting victories and supporting it so in the minds of a lot of ordinary indians uh, this issue or or this conflict is already settled because they are choosing to ignore uh, the humanitarian crisis that is unfolding in the states with constitutional rights being sub- uh, being subverted and uh, um human rights being uh, flouted so with that i think uh, there is going to be more and more uh, resentment that is going to to uh, define the narrative towards the indian state from uh, now on and with more access i feel to the state we we are likely to get um a more uh, clear picture of what is really going on since we're not uh, 100% clear on that uh, as well so in the next couple of weeks that's what we are expecting um at the same time there is legal recourse that is being taken uh, there is a petition like i mentioned earlier which is pending in the court of law so it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out and how that case um also unfolds and uh, so legally and uh, politically as well we see these two uh, important forces coming together um, to sort of dually address the crisis so yeah Thank you so much for that analysis. Really insightful. Sumedha Pal, uh, she's a journalist with NewsClick. You can follow her work there. I highly recommend it. Follow her also on Facebook and on Instagram. Sumedha, thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today and helping us understand the situation there. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks a lot. L- listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again real soon.